Welcome to my den. Today's episode is kind of absolutely hilarious in today's context. So here we are sitting in the spring of 2023, and Dan and I recorded this episode back at the end of 2022, before ChatGPT just literally rocked our world and has changed so much about how I conduct business, how my friends do their work. It is absolutely mind-boggling. Now, Dan Turchin is an AR and AI expert, and his company, PeopleRain, is the leading AI platform for employee service automation. Today's conversation, you'll get to hear the personal side of Dan, who I affectionately call Spock, and he, he I'm telling you, he just looks like Spock. It's crazy. And uh, he has had just an amazing background. But listen with an ear attuned to what Dan has to say about what the future will look like, which at the time of recording the episode, we thought might've been several years off. And now we're realizing this reality could take place, could be a reality within a very, very short time frame with the power of tools like ChatGPT. I highly encourage you after hearing the personal side of Dan's story and the passion behind his mission, go check out his podcast, which is called AI and the Future of Work on any of your streaming services, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, he just had an episode that I thought was really interesting with Bradley Metrock, who's the CEO of Project Voice and VC, where they talk about the future of voice assistants with AI. And also he interviewed Bob Rogers recently, who wrote an entire book with ChatGPT. So some super, super cool, relevant, agile episodes over there on his podcast once you hear this intro to him and our incredible conversation. Dan's also an active angel investor and an advisor. He is invested in about 30 companies and is just on the forefront of AI technology development all across Silicon Valley. So I really, really enjoyed getting this inside look into who Dan is and uh, and what the heart behind what he does is. You can follow him on Twitter at D Turchin as well. He's, he's such a great guy. Just tell me when you see him, you don't think Spock instantly. <laughs> All right, without further ado, hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that, and join me in my living room with the amazing Dan Turchin. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. Let's do this. Let's do it. Good to reconnect, Hannah. <laughs> you as well. I'm I'm so excited to have you, Dan. And I have to say, last time we got off the call, I I went off and I told my husband, I have just met real life Spock. I don't know if you remember this, but you were wearing like a blue uh, V-neck shirt and like everything, like your surroundings, like you were just showing me with primary colors. And 
I was just like, man, I've just met real life Spock. And not only does he look like Spock, he works in AI and tech. And it made me so happy. So I have to ask, are you a, are you a Trekkie at all? Or is this just coincidence? Of course I'm a Trekkie. And that's like the biggest compliment I've ever been paid. And <laughs> let's see, my kids aren't familiar with Spock, but I'm still going to be like the cool dad that I was compared to the one and only Leonard Nimoy. Well, now you need to show them, you know, at least one episode. Honestly, to be honest with you, Dan, this is terrible. I've only seen probably two or three episodes of the original Star Trek, but of course I've watched all the new movies. Um, but my husband and I just started um, a new show called The Orville. I guess it's not new. It's like 2017. Have you seen that? I haven't, but it sounds like it needs to go on the watch list. It's so good. It's um, it's basically the creator, who's also the the protagonist in the show, he was trying to create Star Trek Star Trek-like content, but in a modern-day context. So it's like all of the people on the ships, they're just like crazy characters. But you know how Star Trek, of course, explored, you know, the first interracial kiss on, on screen and like and controversial topics of the time. Well, the Orville does the same thing, but it's things like, um, well, one example that I thought was cool, there's this species of, of but you know, biological organism that is an all male species. And if a female is born into their species, or, you know, it only happens like once every 75 years or something, it's considered a birth defect, like the gender of that child is considered a birth defect. So as soon as they're born, they undergo corrective surgery. So anyway, the point is like, they're opening up very controversial topics in the context of a different world's like moral standards and, and whatever. It was just super fascinating. So I, anyway, if you get a chance yeah, to check so it out, it's so funny because around here, we just call that Silicon Valley. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. You, you, you talk about art imitating life, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, so, so true. I, yeah. The world is shifting very rapidly, but I just, anyway, this was 2017. I feel like now things change by the day, but five Sounds years like Westworld. ago. What? I've, Maybe, I haven't seen Westworld. Uh, put it on your list. Okay, I will. Yeah, what are your like? What are your favorite top, I don't know, five shows or some that fall in top five? I'm big into documentaries. Oh. So, um, uh, the, let's see. Um, the one that I just watched, which is amazing, is called... Um, uh, Skid Row Marathon. Hmm. It's an amazing story about a judge in East LA who uh, decides to start training uh, people on Skid Row, just destitute, you know, uh, mental health issues, just you know, in in a really dark place, to run marathons. And it specifically chronicles—I don't want to give it all away—but it specifically chronicles one gentleman who becomes a very accomplished musician and dude runs a marathon. And before meeting the judge, he couldn't run to get a beer from the fridge. And, you know, you, you, you track the progress of him and, you know, the, these, these other really down and out people who embrace, you know, the sport of running and become motivated. And that's a great one, but I'm a sucker for uh, human stories and uh, told through the lens of great documentarians. That is so interesting. Okay, I'm definitely, it's called Skid Row Marathon is what you said? Skid Row Marathon, Amazon Prime. That sounds really, really cool. I, yeah, it, I, I love documentaries too, but I, I don't know the last time that I've 
really watched one. Anyway, you've inspired me to, to, to watch there another documentary. That when I was in Colombia, you know, a couple of weeks ago, some of the the locals there were telling me about films made in Argentina, Brazil. I guess there was one in Colombia as well that sounded absolutely fascinating. And so I've gotten into this this run of like watching um, film, of course, like international films. But the, I just thought, you know, international films from what you typically think of, you know, Bollywood or South Korea or like whatever. But this has opened up a whole new world. Like their their cinematography is so different than anything we have here. Just the way, not just the way they film it, but the script writing, like it, it's fascinating. And uh, Portuguese films, but anyway, it's- Subtitle? <laughs> Um, yes, some, well, some of them, I don't speak Portuguese. I try to watch the Spanish ones with, without subtitles for getting it. Mi, mi español es muy mal and my Portuguese is even worse. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I, there's people, locals there who were, you know, on their fourth or fifth language because they speak indigenous, you know how it is. Every other part of the world, they speak so many more languages than we do. It's crazy. Well, you're a digital nomad. You're, uh, you're way ahead of most of us having experienced all these different cultures. Fair enough. Only a few so far, but we'll we'll hopefully get to more in the future. What's but next for you? What's next on the list? I so the, this is my my Gen Z self thinking, but I am wanting to try to do some international and some just here locally. So what we've been thinking is maybe we'll spend three three to six months at home here in Asheville because I love being here as a home base. And then we'll probably spend another three months, maybe somewhere up north. We may go to um, Boston or I have a good community in like Rhode Island of all places. So we might go somewhere up north or we might go south to Florida, basically somewhere like friends and family could visit if they wanted to come in for a weekend or stay for a couple of weeks. Because nobody, nobody in my you know immediate friend group was able to fly to Columbia to visit us for a week. So anyway, we're trying to stay local probably for the next couple of trips. And then we may go international. I would love, would love to spend three months in Japan. Like that, have you ever done like a, a lengthy trip, three three months or whatever in, in Japan or in any Asian country, honestly? Not multiple months. I... Before my first startup, this is back in the 90s, I worked for Disney, and I did two months at Disneyland Paris, mm. marne la Valle, which is about an hour outside uh, Paris. Um, and I've lived in a lot of places, 11 or 12 places across various countries, but never, never for more than, say, four weeks other than Disney. Well, four weeks sounds like a, a good timeline. Did you find it was short, too short, too long? Too short, because I was just starting to pick up the language. And then I left and I did live also at Disney in Orlando for six months. And that's pretty much a different country as well. So I think that counts as being international. <laughs> being in the South is a different country. No, oh gosh. I, mean, no shit. I, I mean, once you leave the friendly confines of the park, it's like pre-civil rights America. I was, I was stunned. I mean, I, literally Hannah, they're like, there, there are still to this day aisles in the grocery stores that are, not not for every colored person. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? I didn't know this existed. In Literally, Orlando. I mean, there are, there are some of the most bizarre, I mean, antiquated is a polite term for it, but laws in the South related to when you can drink and where you can buy 
alcohol and who can shop and what aisles and which products are in them. And, you know, even if I saw it in the Smithsonian, I would still say, you know, it's offensive and, uh, you know, and an, an artifact of history that should be, um, you know, uh, uh, made obsolete, but it actually exists. And yeah, this was in the nineties. I hope here, you know, 25 years better. later it's changed, but gosh, I mean, even in the nineties, how unacceptable was that? It was, it was uh, eye opening in a way that, you know, I grew up in California, spent most of my professional life in Silicon Valley. There's so much that you take for granted, but I think it's good, you know, t- to the point about traveling and being a digital nomad, you really appreciate different cultures that sometimes makes you appreciate your own culture, but sometimes you just learn about yourself by immersing yourself in other cultures. And in my case, I learned more spending six months in Orlando than I did in my time outside Paris in terms of <laughs> being in a foreign culture. <laughs> That's so funny you say that because I, I live in the middle of that. I mean, so in North Carolina, which is definitely technically still the South, def, like 100%. Um, I live in, in between, literally on the line between the most conservative county in North Carolina and the most progressive county in North Carolina. So there's like, you should, you should just see, I don't know if you've been to Asheville before, but if you travel between the two counties, like, let's say you're here, you want to, you know, go enjoy some beer in Asheville, like go to all the beer gardens, but then you also want to go on an amazing hike you have to cross counties. So you go from Buncombe to Henderson and Henderson is, I mean, we're stuck in the dark ages in a lot of ways. And then Buncombe is like hippie town. So it's the most, it is the weirdest feeling. Like, I mean, I, I travel a lot and these two counties, like just the feel is just the craziest thing. Cause you've got people who defy all norms, like what you would expect. You've got like super hippie dreadlock, like trans people who are super conservative gun hold, you know, gun houses. Like you have that. And then you have like the, the typical like Scottish church going woman who lives in Buncombe County. Who's, who's like just progressive enough to like accept all, all of the, you know, more progressive trends. So it's just, it's the weirdest mix. I'm telling you, it is the weirdest mix of people and the fights we get into. It's like you're living back in like Hatfield and McCoy day. Um, and then you cross ten- into Tennessee and it's, it, it is strange country. I'll, yes, I, I will agree with okay, you. Okay, so there. my last company was based in Raleigh and uh-huh. we had a big customer in Charlotte. So I crisscrossed that path quite often. Did I miss? Mm-hmm. Where, where you is missed. This, this, I didn't see the gun toters and... <laughs> I didn't experience this part of North Carolina. What did I miss? So Asheville is in, Asheville's on the tip, like the Western, very Westernmost part. So we're in the by mountains. By Tennessee, gotcha. Yeah, okay. by Tennessee. We're like, it takes about 45 minutes to get into South Carolina and it's about an hour to Tennessee. So we're like right on the tip. So if you were in Raleigh and Charlotte, you would have missed everything that gotcha. is this. Yeah. So how far it's, east is Charlotte? Charlotte is about a two-hour drive. Oh, pretty far. Okay. Yeah. It's not terrible, but I mean... It's a long state. This is how crazy me and my husband are. We'll sometimes drive to Charlotte for Ethiopian food because we don't have any here. We'll just be like, it's six o'clock at night. Let's go to Charlotte. Um, Good food. Oh, gosh. Yes. Anyway, but next time you're in North Carolina, we'll have to, to connect because it is, it is a very interesting place. Like Charlotte and Raleigh have as a maybe... Maybe your perspective is different, but in, in my opinion, I lived in Raleigh for a few months and the culture there to me just, it feels 
it feels very similar to a lot of other cities you would go to. You know, I mean, it's the capital and, and that's what you're going to get. Um, and all of my friends who have graduated from here have pretty much moved to either Raleigh or Charlotte, mostly Raleigh. And um, anyway, it, I, I love Raleigh. It was a cool city. But here in Asheville, you get you get the weirdos. <laughs> we'll just say the that. anthropologist in me is fascinated by this conversation. And my all the times that I spent in Charlotte, it felt very sterile to me. And maybe that's just because oh, yeah. so much of the big finance money came in. I feel like maybe crushed a culture that otherwise would have been interesting. I don't know what Charlotte was like before. Well. I don't even know when this time period would would have been, but I agree. Charlotte feels pretty sterile. Right. Um, I, you know, it's funny you say that because I, so I grew up homeschooled and my cousin who is currently in Charlotte, she's in her, I want to say late thirties or early forties. She remembers, she was one of the first, her parents were one of the first families to homeschool in Charlotte. And she remembers having to like close all the curtains. I guess this was back in the eighties late 80s, close all the curtains and like hide because they were always afraid, afraid that social services was going to come by and, you know, remove her from, from the home. Um, but anyway, to, to go from like that to what it feels like now and just being super sterile and I don't know. I, it feels yeah, like any place USA to me. Yeah, exactly. And I'm assuming that at some point it had a real personality. Maybe so. Maybe so. But um, anyway, the, the anthropologist conversation is very interesting, and it, it's kind of a cool transition into what I would love to talk with you about today, which is AI. And, and I mean, everything. If we have Spock here to talk about AI, we're going to do it. Um, I, I love this topic of AI, and it, honestly, it's, it's a world that I, I would say use... Let's, let's distinguish this. Maybe you can distinguish it for me. So we have AI and we have automation. We've got augmented reality. We have virtual reality. Like people get these terms so mixed up and I'm probably one of them. So forgive me if I do that, but you can help, help guide this, this sort of conversation about this topic. I would say in my daily life as native digital, and I would say this is pretty common among all of Gen Z. We're great users and adapters to tech or AI or, you know, automation, but we don't really know how it works. We just sort of use it because we've grown up native to it. So I would say like in, in my life, I use automation pretty frequently. I mean, like we were talking about before we, we pressed record with things like Calendly and using these automated techniques. But in terms of the future of AI and its impact on work. I can't wait to just break this open and and hear your thoughts. And I wanted to start here because last time we talked, you said something that was really, really interesting. You're talking about the future of humanity, not just AI, because we we all hear the stories of you know AI taking over and blah, 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 and all the sci-fi, <laughs> like we were talking about a second ago. But in terms of the future of humanity, you said something really interesting. You're talking about how the future of humanity is a world in which people, through leveraging AI, are able to do what they truly love instead of, you know, everything, right? So I just wanted to open this box of, open this can of worms and Tell me, like, what you mean by that? Like, paint paint a picture 
for me of like, what does the future of humanity look like once AI is truly a part of our culture and, and it's at its fullest potential? I'll preface my comments with, I'm the CEO of PeopleRain, which is a, a SaaS platform that automates the delivery of IT and HR service for employees at large enterprises. And our name is no coincidence. We firmly believe that while technology is great, people reign. So every feature that we develop, every time we educate a customer about the future of work, every time we host a workshop, we always spend more time talking about how to use technology to improve humans and to accelerate or catalyze the future of work. We spend a lot less time talking about the how and more talking about the, the what and the why. And so what you said about Gen Z and being great consumers of new technologies like AI and machine learning, that's the way it should be, right? You should be, you should be able to be a great consumer of a technology without knowing how it works. And so a lot of our, our mission is to impact the next billion employees' work life in a way that helps them feel more human. We want to give every employee back about an hour a week to be better spouses, parents, friends, pursue a hobby. Do something more of what you love and spend an hour less kind of being treated like a ticket or you know, things like that. So it's kind of ironic that um, you know, my whole professional career is my seventh company in and around applying AI machine learning to employee service has all been focused on taking technology that's complex and uh, bleeding edge and can seem like science fiction and using it actually to humanize the experience at work. So in terms of our vision, how do we, how do we get there from here? Um, well, the answer is first thinking about a different way uh, to, to conceive of the value that AI and machine learning can bring to, to a large enterprise. And it starts with thinking about the A and AI not as being artificial, but as being augmented. So when we think about that future where the fusion of humans and machines really takes away the drudgery from work and makes it easier to get the best answer, you can think about how technologies like AR and VR, um, but beyond that, uh, you know, Think about AI just being infused within the workplace of the future. So when I walk into my office, the walls know who I am, it, it, not in a creepy bot way, but in a way that helps me do my job better. So I never have to guess where the printer is or what the Wi-Fi passcode is. And when I book a conference room, it knows how many people I need it for and knows what temperature I like the room at. When I go to order from the cafeteria, you know, it understands you know, the kinds of things I like, it might make recommendations, it might, you know, let, let me know, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, the leadership team, you know, is, is, uh, is in town, maybe I want to go for the, the AMA, they ask me anything. So think of this guided experience that I have as an employee, that turns ordinary requests that I have, whether it's, you know, I need to take some time off, I need to submit PTO, or, you know, I need to get Hannah on the guest network, like all these just mundane tasks that frankly, create a bunch of friction between me and my employer, those go away. So that's the hour a week that you get back to do more of what you love, like be creative, like 
you know, spend more time with your team, you know, and don't spend time being treated like a ticket. So we, we've, you know, we've specifically looked at this uh, n- narrow field within AI that uh, you know, we feel like can be used most effectively not to create creepy bots or you know, not, not to um, you know, have you know, bots take your job. It's not like that. It really is not about the bot apocalypse. It's about just taking into account the fact that there's all this data swimming around with all the right answers. And if we could build like a great big digital brain that like, you know, is Hannah's personal concierge, like that would be awesome. Like Hannah would love what she does because like, you know, you've got like your companion brain, like that gets smarter all the time and is just there to assist you, to make you like the best version of Hannah. That's our vision for the future of work. And that's really our vision for the future of humanity. Well, first of all, I love the idea of this vision you paint. I mean, that would be amazing, amazing if, if that's the case. But I want to make sure I, I'm hearing what you're saying correctly. So when you say replace the A with augmentation, in your opinion, would you say that that this idea of augmentation is superior to us, for example, all entering a virtual reality, working, living, playing in a virtual reality, or do the two align in a really natural way? So think about um, this. You and I are world travelers. Um, So when you spend time in Argentina, or maybe a better example is Brazil, where you and I don't speak the language, you can think about, you know, having, uh, you know, your glasses that are translating everything in, in real time. So interesting use case. The technology has existed for a while, but the only technical impediments have been bandwidth, storage, problems that we're rapidly solving. Algorithms, obviously, uh, uh, data training, things like that. But w- what's going to happen is when I talk about augmentation, it'll be you know things like that where um, what we had thought of as science fiction a decade ago will become commonplace at work. You know, another example of augmentation is um, I do you know, a bunch of research. Let's say before, you know, in my world, I go into a customer meeting or I'm presenting a workshop, you know, talking about, you know, maybe ways to unlock the power of your data to provide automated decisions. And I need to do some research. So what would be amazing is if my research capabilities were augmented by AI. And you can see things like right now, at least in Silicon Valley, all the buzz around generative AI. So we can use models like GPT-3 to generate uh, uh, text from speech or more recently things like Dolly to generate images from text prompts. And so things like that dramatically accelerate the quality of my work output. They let me be more creative but they augment things that I already know how to do. I still need to have the idea. I need to come up with the prompt. I need to parse through the output of GPT-3 or Dolly and figure out what to do with it. But the whole exercise of getting from question to answer faster by benefiting from the sum total of the world's knowledge about a topic, whether that's through you know glasses that augment my surroundings or Maybe it's, you know, for the visually impaired, you know, using an AR, VR technique or, you know, uh, you know helping uh, people in wheelchairs, you know, uh, you know with, with artificial limbs. Or There's so many use cases that come down to 
using data to solve a problem, whether it's mechanical or related to research or, you know, what I, I don't like the term, I think is a negative connotation, but biohacking, you know, ways to improve us as, as humans. These are all ultimately data problems. And there's amazing research in AI that's going into the augmentation of capabilities that we thought, we thought there was a limit to what we could do as humans. Now we realize there's no limit and it's augmented intelligence that's helping us realize that. This is fascinating and, and I would completely agree with this sort of assessment that it seems like the bigger opportunity for humanity is the augmentation of, of the natural world. Like, you know, the limited cases we have right now of things like um, an example, maybe um, flow, like a period app tracker that's also feeding you through machine learning, feeding you recommendations. And like, this is how you're going to be feeling based on your hormone levels. Of course, that's only applicable to women. But the idea is like this augmentation is what's helping, you know, humans live a better life. And even if we're not to the full extent of the picture that you painted, that seems to be more useful. And I'm even saying this as a native digital than something like meta, which we'll see where it goes. But from my standpoint, it's like, if, if Gen Z is very difficult to impress, for example, and I know this as a Gen Zer, I'm watching my peers who are very unimpressed with the current tech that we have access to in VR, because it's just not, it's not real enough. It's so there's this, and who knows, again, where we'll head in the future, but there seems to be this, 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 barrier at least that we're hitting right now where the augmented reality just has it's a better user experience like it's a better i can better connect like what it's doing for me as a person versus virtual reality where you know i <laughs> i saw the other day how many universities are investing in creating metaverse campuses that look identical to their current university i'm like guys we don't need 500 seats in a theater if we're not physically sitting in a theater in the virtual reality like we're gonna have to reinvent these spaces but anyway this is a complete tangent but to your point augmented reality i would completely agree it seems like that's the bigger opportunity to bring us forward as humans and i'm really curious to get your thoughts on this so painting a bigger picture because we we've talked about ai on the show before and you know intricacies and all that so i'm more curious to get your thoughts on this this giant like 360 picture when we have access to ai like you're describing it or machine learning or using you know this, this reality that you painted what do you think are going to be the implications on everything in life from like lifestyles, family structure, um, productivity, like what should we be thinking about in, in this future that we're creating? What do you think, or can you foresee, or have you thought about like, what's going to happen? Are we going to, are we going to, are those things going to adapt or change as we know them just based on the integration of, of machine learning? And you pick, feel free to topics. pick one. <laughs> I throw a big, giant question. I don't know where to start. I, so I just actually had a uh, interesting guest on my podcast. I host a podcast called AI in the Future of Work. We published over 150 episodes discussing topics exactly like this one. And I had a recent one talking uh, with a reporter from Axios named Kia Kokolicheva. 
and she was reporting on the story of uh, Adam Newman of WeWork fame, of WeWork fame, his second act, uh, a co-living extension to WeWork's co-working environment. And so we got into this discussion about uh, society, the future. Uh, you know, we, we kind of got to play cultural anthropologist for an episode and specifically uh, work relationships and, you know, what it, uh, what it means when the, what we've traditionally called a workforce turns into really a work net. So your work net is stitched together from a combination of kind of gig work and, um, you know, maybe part-time roles. But the main thing is that it's stitched together based on stuff that you love doing. So all day long, you're doing something that you're an expert in. And I just want to pause there and reflect on the, how profound that is, that the reason, you know, work's a four-letter word and there are, you know, traditionally negative connotations with what it means to work, the essence of humanity, like the, the, the thing that makes us, when we're, when we're the best versions of ourselves is when we get to do something that we love. And when we get paid for doing something we love, it's all the better. So the next generation is going to be trained not to have to compromise. So I think, you know, Gen Z has done an amazing job of starting to remind employers who has the power. And who has the power is the one generating the value for the customer. And that's the worker in the work. And when all of a sudden you have an organization that consists of only people who love what they do and do that all the time, and that may be you know, stitched together across three or four things they love to do, but it's project-based versus role-based. And so I want to be an employer who lives in that world where I go and hire someone who comes in to do a project or you know, fulfill or complete a task and their values are aligned with my values. Like I'm only interacting with the best version of that person. Now, when that person leaves work, they got a halo around them, right? They just enjoyed what they did. They felt like they were valued. They felt like they were trusted. They felt like they were respected. They're proud of the output of that day of labor that they did. And because we've taken the best of people and assigned that to these projects in the form of this work net, there's a dividend that gets paid to all of society when all of us are spending most of our time doing things we love and that halo effect transcends everything that we do. That's not a technology story. It's not about... Uh, you know, Moore's law. It's not about, you know, can you shrink the size of a chip so that you can put it in wearables so that you can have augmented reality glasses. Like these problems are getting solved. I guarantee you that. There are some brilliant minds who are taking a bunch of data and doing a lot of things with storage and, and uh, performance. But the vision that has to drive all of this innovation is that view of what the world will be like when we're the best versions of ourselves because we spend most of our waking hours doing things that we love doing with people that we love doing them with. I love that concept of workforce to work net. Do you think that if, you know, in, in the context of the work net that someone will be working a full-time career? Or do you think part of being, you know, being that, that person who's doing what we love means that we're going to have 
you know, millions of freelancers who are working at four or five or six different companies who are doing some playing on the jungle gym a little over here, doing what they love then doing something else at a different company. What, what does that picture look like? Within the next five years, we think that automation will eliminate about 20% of a typical worker's tasks. So a day a week. Today at People Rain, uh, we're five years away from seeing that vision come to fruition. But even today, we give back every employee, every user of People Rain about an hour a week. But so fast forward to that day a week that you get back for, for decades. We've talked about the four-day work week, and Tim Ferriss has talked about it a lot, and various other, uh, other, other media personalities or, or authorities on the topic. But it's always been uh, fictional. It's always been kind of in the, in the realm of a thought experiment. What if? Well, that's real. So in the next five years, you'll see whole new careers being generated. Things like being a topic modeler for generative AI. So there's a whole field that haven't even, we haven't even conceptualized what it means to be feeding prompts into generative AI. We haven't thought about what it means when the predominant computing interface is through voice. So take uh, our parents or our parents' parents' generations who are aging, retiring from the workforce, and uh, they're going to get their medication and they're going to get their care through digital assistance. And so there's whole careers that are going to be created using people who appreciate you know, how to use voice, d- digital first voice assistance to help the elderly population get their meds and stay healthy and stay active. So we haven't even started to think about what we can do with that extra day a week or what the world will look like in a different way, but a better way from now. And we're talking about five years. It's not, it's not exactly so you know, soon. Jetsons or Buck Rogers. <laughs> 2028, <laughs> Hannah. That was going to be my question was how, like, how far along this path are we? And if it's fi- you know, five years in the future, and I want to make sure I capture that correctly. So you're saying within five years, tw- about 20% of, of the typical workers' tasks will be eliminated. So we could theoretically, across the you know, various parts of the world, people could be accomplishing as much in five days as, as they, you know, in four days as they currently are in five, within Correct. five years. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, that and incredible. it spans, you can extend this conversation to almost any field, doctors, lawyers, professionals, but also agriculture. We're doing amazing things with, you know, augmentation of the human body to reduce stress on someone, you know, picking strawberries. Um, but it applies equally well to defense, uh, education, you know, it's, we're going to have tools that make it much easier to learn faster and to supplement the learning process. Every field is being disrupted and that, that, uh, that 20% law is going to apply. And it's incumbent on us as leaders to, n- knowing that, that that's five or fewer years out, start inspiring people to take advantage of the capabilities that we'll have when we get back that extra day a week. It's funny you say this because back to like, 10 minutes ago, we were talking about of how so many parts of our country are still so far behind in so many areas. It's going to be really interesting to see this sort of gap that's created between the companies who are like, yes, I'm taking AI at its fullest potential. We're integrating everything possible. And then the ones who are, you know, still struggling with email, (laughs) because that is still, I got on a call the other week with a company that refused to let their employees use email. They had to use the phone for, it was a sales team. 
and they had still had fax machines in the background. And I'm thinking, how are you, st it was a legacy media company, but anyway, how are they still in business? Um, <laughs> this is, this is such a fascinating conversation. Dan. Offline, tell me what that company is so I can short the stock. <laughs> I think it's still, it's a privately held company. So unfortunately I can't, but yeah, it, it was, it was very fascinating. So let me ask you, cause I, I know we've got to cut this time pretty short, but let me ask you one more big question and shift gears here. So I had a conversation, fascinating one, um, a couple weeks ago with a friend of mine, and we were talking about this idea of what happens when AI makes the world so much wealthier and we move, you know, we're, we're trying to automate things, but we're, we still have politicians who are still talking about jobs, 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 and they're creating these artificial jobs for people who hold signs at construction, you know, construction sites and people who work in fast food just for the sake of jobs, right? So this was the conversation we had, and I'm really curious to get your thoughts. We were talking about, we think it's very probable that in the very near future, we're going to have some private companies step up and say, we're going to start offering a, whatever they call it, maybe it's universal basic income, but in my opinion, and, and my friend and I were sort of debating this and talking about pros and cons, but like, what if a private company, let's say it's Elon Musk, you know, steps up and says, I'm seeing that people and politicians are getting in the way of us truly automating that, you know, our work or whatever we're trying to automate. So what if we just pay people to sit in their house and shut up was kind of the question. So anyway, I want to get your thoughts on this because this is so, to me, this is a topic I, I don't think much about, I guess, but we were having just that fascinating dialogue of like, what if that could happen? You know, what if private companies say, we've got all these people who need an income to survive, but they're not upskilling themselves enough to be valuable to that mission. So what if we do get to the point when where private companies are like, we'll just pay you a salary to sit at home and stay out of the way? What are your, your thoughts, reactions? It's a really important conversation. So oftentimes UBI or universal basic income is a, has kind of negative connotation. But the fact is, fast forward, certainly five years, if not less, anything that's, we refer to it as dull, dirty, or dangerous, is a good candidate for automation, things that humans were never really intended to do. Uh, detonating mines in a minefield, uh, you know, capping uh, fires on oil rigs, you know, these are jobs that uh, uh, can be fully automated and uh, with a 100% safety track record, and, you know, let's leave it to the humans to be in the control room, you know, writing the algorithms or tuning the applications, but uh, let's not send people into harm's way. So whether it's careers like that that are being fully automated or uh, humans more frequently will be needed to supplement or control what automation is doing, when we think about UBI, it's less about this, this notion of, you know, like you alluded to, paying people to do nothing but it's more using it as an opportunity to upskill, reskill, rethink what it means to be a human and take that productivity dividend or take the, you know, the, the dividend of time that we get back from tasks that are being automated that are better suited for machines and using that to invest in skills that require empathy, judgment, rational thinking. And I guarantee you that everybody who's displaced because they're doing a job that's primarily dull, dirty, or dangerous, and instead 
we as a, as a culture, as a society, as a global community can invest in their ability to do things that uniquely require human intuition, we're better off. We're better off as a society. That's the world I want my kids to grow up in. I really want to catalyze that future and help everyone understand that using technology and embracing innovation to accelerate that vision of the future is something that ultimately benefits everyone. I'm sure we could continue that conversation for a long time. There's so many nuances, so many different angles, but I know you've got to run. So this has been so good, Dan. Thank you for opening my mind and just talk. This is refreshing, honestly, to just talk about what the future could be and not get so caught up in what the stereotypes or what we sort of think the future is based on our, you know, 1970s understanding of sci-fi or what, you know, what, what Hollywood was sort of painting. And we've come so far. And so thank you for, for opening my mind and hopefully the minds of the, the many people who, who listen and get to, to hear this. Hannah, let's do this again sometime. And I'm wearing my Spock ears next time. How's that? Yes. And wear, wear your blue suit too. And a blue, blue suit. Blue shirt. <laughs> you bet. All right. All Hannah, right. this has been so much fun. Thanks for hosting. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>